Hey, we are finishing up a series called Rich in God. Turn to the person next to you and say, Rich in God. Uh, turn to the person on the other side and say, Rich in God. Now tell them to give you some money. Ask them for some money while you're in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, we started this. In case you haven't had an opportunity to be a part of this series, you can go back and watch it online. But we started this series four weeks ago um, with the concept and with the understanding of this parable that Jesus had gone into in the book of Luke chapter 12. What happens is Jesus is approached by uh, this young man in the crowd of people, obviously his older brother standing there. He says, Jesus, tell my big brother to give me my part of the inheritance. Obviously the dad had died and the big brother was the executor of the will or whatever. And, uh, and Jesus doesn't engage in the conflict, but instead he goes into a parable. And a parable, as you'll find in Jesus' teachings, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find them mainly in the gospel. A parable is a story that Jesus would use uh, where the characters have reference points for different ones of us and him and kingdom business and things like that. And he'd use that to tell a story and to teach a principle. And so he goes into a parable about a man who was very rich, super wealthy. And this man, obviously, in those days, uh, uh, with an uh, agrarian culture, in other words, uh, you know, uh, animals and crops and things like that, this man, who was already rich, had a bumper crop. He, he, he basically, his business exploded beyond what he ever thought it possible. And, and so as a result, as he's telling the story that this rich man, what he does, he says, what am I going to do with all this, extra, all this crazy money I'm making? I will tear down my old barns, build new barns, fill them up, store it all away, and I will live my life with ease, and I will sit back, eat, drink, and be be married. And in Jesus's story, he says, then God comes to him that day and says, today you're going to die. And Jesus then lays out this statement. He says, and so it will be for all those who are not rich in God or rich in the things of the Lord. We also looked at that passage where Jesus said, do not store for yourself in this life riches where moth and rust do destroy, but store for yourself riches in heaven where no one can take that away from you. And so in Jesus's story, what he did is to set a precedence and what is it to be really, if you will, rich or rich in God? He actually confronts the attitude of the day. And the attitude of the day was that if you were wealthy, God had blessed you. If you weren't wealthy, God was mad at you. Uh, it seems like that has crept back in uh, to some of the teaching that I see on Christian television these days. And that's a far cry from it, just the opposite. And so what we did was we went into the understanding that to be rich in God is really where each and every one of us want to live in. Because he says of this man, because of your haughtiness, because of your greediness, because of your inability to recognize that it is God who gave you the wealth that you have and your desire to keep it all for yourself, he said, today your life will be required for you. And we went into an understanding that to be rich prosperous has so much less to do with how much money you have in your bank account, what type of cars you drive, what type of house you live in, and so much more about peace, joy, come on somebody, that your children are serving God, that you're overcoming sickness and disease, that you got peace in your life, that all your needs are being met according to his riches and glory, but not all your little beady eye wants that you necessarily want to have. Come on, you with me? And so as we studied into that, we found out as we went into the second week in this teaching uh, we quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, which should be just about every one of yours, one of your key passages that you believe uh, God's word over you. And that is, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. When we looked at that word prosper in, in, uh, in Western American 2018 culture. We think prosperity means that we won American Idol that we have uh, little uh, administrative assistants following us around, bringing us uh, specialized water that has come straight from the a pure spring and uh, underground in some obscure mountain range. We think that prosperity is that we have, uh, we have uh, 10 million people following us on social media and that we have all the money we could ever want and we don't ever have to work another day in our life, which is the very thing that Jesus was correcting in his storyline and his parable in Luke 12 in the first part that we studied. And just the opposite, prosperity actually by definition is to be um, is, is to increase to succeed to flourish and it goes beyond just our financial place but it goes more into everyday life experiences that God wants to flourish you in your relationship with your spouse that God wants to cause you to succeed in whatever you're doing as a, as a living that whatever you put your hand to he wants to help bless you and cause you to advance in that and that may or may not mean that you have riches or wealth come through your hands and so as we studied that we saw that his plan I know the plans 
I have for you plans to prosper you. So he has a plan in place to prosper you. Remember, I told you about going to the doctor and he, when I was sick and he put me on an antibiotic plan. I didn't follow the plan and I got sick again. Even to, I, I got more sick, if you will. And because I didn't follow his plan, God has a plan. And we started into some of the key plans that we found in Scripture that God wanted to bless us and prosper us if we'd follow his plan. And the first one that we studied was tithes and offerings. I know it's a dirty word. I know that people have misappropriated it. But at the end of the day, as we studied the book of Malachi, and we studied where God wrote out about some of the pieces about tithes and first fruits, what we, what we learned was this has everything to do with you and God, not you and Church on the Hill, you and Pastor Adam. Tithing is his. And what we learned as we studied that is that he says to the children of Israel in the book of Malachi, now to give you the precedence, in that book, in that scenario, in that season of the Israelites' life, they had been in exile, they had been conquered, they had been in exile. Alexander the Great conquered the nations that had conquered them and allowed them to go back home. So the Israelites had all come back to Jerusalem and had been there for 100 years. They were able to rebuild their temple. It should have been magical. It should have been a wonderful new world. It should have been wonderful and magnificent. And now after 100 years, but the problem has been is that when they lived in the other foreign lands, they took on the foreign attitudes and the foreign false gods, and they became corrupt. And so what happened was they are crying out to God because of the corruption in Israel at the time. And the book of Malachi is, uh, is multiple, is, is six, about six engagements. God has a problem with Israel. God, uh, Israel complains about why it's not so, and God then corrects them in it. And so there's this debate thing going back and forth. In chapter 3, we learned that he said, you are crying out. And it says, we cry out for justice. They were saying, hey, our leadership is wrong. There, there, there's not justice uh, there, there is not rightness. And our leadership is misappropriating us. There's prejudice. There's all these things happening. And God says, oh, really? He says, do you know why you have that? Because of the greed of every one of your hearts. And not only that, if you want to fix that, you'll stop robbing me. And they said, how did we rob you, God? Because you didn't bring your tithe into the storehouse. Because you held back. You thought it was yours. He said, but if you'll test me, come back to it. Remember what I put in place? Teaching you about first fruits, about the tithe, about offering. Come back and do that. And as we learn that that was one of his key principles in causing us to come to a place of trust in him. So tithing as a principle is so much less about, about uh, some religious duty and so much more about you learning to trust God. That's what tithing's about. Then the next week, which was last week, Pastor Jack Clark taught us about generosity, which is his other big principle in scripture, that God blesses us that we may be a blessing. And that he taught us about generosity and that as we're generous, the world looks up and goes, their God is the real God because he's a good father. And so as we learned that God's principles in place causes his ability to prosper, to go forward, to bless us, to cause us to flourish and succeed. And so as we talked about generosity, the goal behind generosity from God to us is that you and I would grab his heart for hurting people. So tithing, the goal in teaching us to tithe is that we actually learn to trust God because we're going to give 10%. makes no sense. I don't know why I'm doing it. It doesn't have a whole lot of practical sense to me, but it's a spiritual principle that God puts in place to teach you to trust him. And so he tells the children of Israel, you've stopped trusting me. That's why you've got injustice all around you because of the greed of your heart. Then we learned about his next big principle is generosity. Generosity, God's teaching us that principle. The reason why? Because he wants us to have what's important to him. He wants us to have his heart. He rips his heart out, puts it in our chest. When God's heart starts beating in your chest, you can't help but be generous. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't withhold him. He said, I'm going to sacrifice the greatest gift so that I could get you back. That's generosity. And when you and I really come to Christ and we really submit to his lordship, his heart comes inside of our chest and we become generous as well. And that in and of itself is how he, he brings forth the plan to prosper us. And then the third area that we see in scripture that we'll teach you today, the third plan or process, if you will, to get you and me to a place where he can actually entrust us is the word stewardship. Everybody say stewardship. You can do better than that. Say stewardship. I know it's not a word we use very much. Our key scripture for that is found in Luke chapter 16. Open your Bibles to there. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. If you forgot your Bible, that's okay, because we have it on the screen for you. The word of God floats in the air in our church. It's amazing how that works. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? True riches. Father, I pray that over the next couple moments, you would help me to communicate to your people your word. Jesus, it won't hurt my feelings one bit 
if over the next 30 minutes that men and women in this room never hear a word that I say because they begin to get downloads from heaven from you. Mental pictures, insights, understandings. God, we just want you, and we want your truth and nothing else. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. So here, here in this verse we see, so if you've, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, and, he, and he's in engagement with the people there uh, in the Galilean area. And he says, listen, how, how can you ask God to entrust you with the supernatural and the real true riches of the world if you can't be faithful and trustworthy with just little earthly wealth, with just little money here and there? And that kind of is our premise, and that's our key scripture. Remember, if you'll, if you'll pay attention to the key scripture for every message, that by the end of the year, you will have gone through 52 key scriptures and pretty much no more word than most people who call themselves Christians. And what we're talking about is stewardship. And let me identify the word steward for some of you, because we don't really use that word in our English language that much. But a steward is a person employed to manage another's property. A person employed to manage another's property. We don't really use that word very much in, in, in our English language, but we have the same actions. And that, that would be like a property manager or a manager. Someone else owns the property, but you manage it for them. You've been entrusted with that. And they expect you to do right by it. They expect you to, they pay you well to actually make it make money. If you're a manager at your company, you don't own the company. You might have a little bit of ownership, you know, if you bought stock, but you don't own the company, but you're a manager. And each and every one of us have had good managers and bad managers. Come on, somebody. Each and every one of us have had things that we've allowed someone else. We've entrusted someone else with something of ours, and we all have good and bad experiences. I don't know if you've ever learned loaned your car to someone. Help me, Jesus. And we all have good and bad experience of entrusting something that's valuable to us to someone else. Why do you think if you've ever been uh, somewhere, you know, uh, if you've ever been to a school or something like that and see a woman losing her mind because mama bear feels like somebody has not done right by baby, by a baby girl and somebody going to die because mama bear ain't having it. Come on, you with me? Some of y'all been that day. Y'all been all kind and sweet right now, but I've seen some of you in Walmart losing your mind because somebody didn't say, say something nice to your kid. It's amazing. Why? Because you want to entrust people with things and you want them to walk properly in that trust. And so when we talk about stewardship, this is a principle that God's instituted for you and I. That if you and I can be faithful with what he gives us here, he can increase it over there. In other words, stewardship is about making what has been entrusted to me the very best I can make it. Do the very best with it that I can. That really is the concept that's not behind stewardship. If God could entrust you with a little, he can then entrust you with much. That's what the word of God teaches us. I want to look into a parable where Jesus teaches about stewardship. Let's turn quickly to Luke chapter, um, chapter 19. Is that okay? Can we read the Bible a little bit today? Would that be all right? Say yes. We are in church and it would be really good to read his word. So let's do that. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 12. It's a large portion of Scripture, but you've got to get Jesus' storyline. In the midst of it, I'll break it down a little bit. And he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Again, this is a parable. Verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects, verse 14, hated him. And sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to be our king. Now, let me kind of set the scene real quick. Uh, this passage of scripture, Jesus is just, he's sitting in the house of Zacchaeus. Now, if you don't know who Zacchaeus is uh, in scripture, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were hated by the Jews. And the reason why, because they were the guys who were Jews who worked for the Romans. So they would tax the Jews, and they'd go get the money for them and give it to the Romans. And the Jews hated being taxed by the Romans. And it's their own people, their own Jewish people, working for the Romans, taking money from them. And many times the tax collectors would take more than they should, and they had ultimate power. They were kind of like the IRS. And what they could do is they could have you shut down. They could have your house uh, 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 torn apart. They could take anything they wanted from you if you didn't, quote, pay the taxes. And they had authority to use, uh, you know, the policing agencies, the military, whatever, to literally make you do what they wanted you to do. And they, many times they were very corrupt. So Zacchaeus was this wee little man. And a wee little man was he. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted. Some of you never went to VBS. I know you were spending all that good time over in, uh, in jail. Anyway, so, so <laughs> you, you, you're in juvie. I know what happened to you. I'm sorry. 
And so what happened was Zacchaeus was a smaller man. I really identify with this guy. I mean, I really get the heart with this guy. And Jesus had come into town, and he couldn't see him because the crowd of people, so he climbs up in a tree. And the Bible says that Jesus walked up to him, and he said, Zacchaeus, for I'm going to your house today. Isn't that what he said? And so he goes to his house, and all the religious people are like, oh, how dare you go to Zacchaeus' house? But there was a party going, so they came too. But they couldn't believe that if Jesus was so good, how would he go there? And in the midst of Jesus loving on Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' heart changes. And he says, God, everything I've stolen, I will return four times as much to those I've stolen from. And I give half of my possessions to the poor starting today. And Jesus said, salvation's come to your house today, Zacchaeus. And then he goes into this parable. So when Jesus gets to this part that we just read in verse 14, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Who he's talking to is the religious leaders who will not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Who's his servants? Jesus, obviously, is the master in the story. Who's the servants? It's those of us who follow him, those of us who love him, those of us who submitted to his lordship. So continue reading verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one, he came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. You took a dollar and turned it into ten dollars, I'm going to give you ten cities. Because I'm now the man. I'm in charge. Whew. Continuing on. Verse 18, the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And then the master looked at him and said, You loser, why did you not get me ten? The guy before you got ten. What's wrong with you? Did you sit around playing video games? That's not at all what it says. In verse 19, see, some of you are like, Wow. <laughs> you weren't reading along with me. You zoned out. That's why I did it. <laughs> His master said, You take charge of five cities. Didn't have to do with how much was entrusted and how much they earned. Had everything to do that they were faithful and responsible in what was entrusted to them. Continue reading. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minor. I have kept it laid away in a place of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Yeah, that deserves something. My Lord, that was pretty good. Tiny Tim, verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I had not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, verse 25, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. I'll stop there. So in this parable, Jesus is teaching the principle of stewardship. He's actually confronting the people standing around Zacchaeus' house, those who are standing in judgment, who refuse to accept him as the Messiah. And he's actually teaching a principle of who's been entrusted with much, much is required. And I want you to just to understand this. Each and every one of us, God has entrusted us with something. He's entrusted us with beautiful children, a beautiful marriage. He's entrusted us with finances and ability to make wealth, with the brains that you have. Some of you are so brilliant. Oh, my goodness. He's entrusted that to you. And in his parable, he talks about first, the first guy who comes back, and he has taken what was entrusted, and he has stewarded it so well that it has produced ten times as much. And then a second guy comes, and he was trusted with one, but his produced five times as much. And in both scenarios, and there's a parallel passage uh, in the other gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, where actually a parallel passage where where Jesus, uh, the master, looks at the servant and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. He doesn't qualify the one who has more and has made more as better than the one who didn't make quite as much. See, friend, each and every one of us have been given a certain ability, a certain amount. I thank God he didn't entrust me what he entrusted Billy Graham. Come on, are you with me? Can you imagine if God entrusted you with $40 million a year? Right now, you wouldn't know who to be friends with. You wouldn't know what to do with it. 
He entrusts us according to our ability. But the one who had nothing, when he comes, he makes excuses and says, I was scared of you. In that moment, the master is frustrated and he calls him wicked. You are wicked because I've entrusted you and you did not properly handle my trust. Have you ever had anybody mishandle your trust? Have you ever had anybody that said that they were going to stay faithful to you and they cheated with you, uh, against you with someone else? Have you ever had someone that you had a business deal with, that you had a partnership that you trusted, and they did that, they, they mishandled that trust? Can you imagine the same way you felt disappointed, same way you became even enraged? Jesus is qualifying that God the Father, the Master, has entrusted each and every one of us, and he has that same feeling, that same emotion, that, listen, I entrusted you. And many people say, God, I want you to make me rich. God, I need a new job. And he's saying, but I can't trust you with the job you got now. God, I need a better marriage. Yeah, but you're not faithful to the marriage I've given you now. God's saying to you and me, can I trust you? This is stewardship. And this is a principle of the three or four main principles in Scripture that God puts in place, his plans that he puts in place so that he can flourish us, so he can cause us to succeed. Stewardship is one of the key pieces, and most people skip over it. The reason why they skip over it is because they don't really understand it. And so today, I want to give you a little bit of teaching about Stewardship. I know each and every one of us want to be good stewards, but there are obstacles to being a good steward. And we have to face them and we have to overcome them. So let me give you three major obstacles to righteous stewardship. Uh, to, uh, uh, obstacles to righteous stewardship. Number one, here we go. Number one, humanism. I'll wait for it to sink. There we go. Humanism. Now, humanism basically is to believe that we are God. That we are God. Started during the Enlightenment period where... The church, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, had so beat the people and so used fear as a tactic to get them to give money, to get them to be controlled, that what happened was what came out of that was there is no God, we are our gods ourselves, we work hard, we make our life successful, or humanism as we identified the term. And the problem with humanism is that it goes totally against what scripture says. God is our God. And he owns everything. In fact, let me give you a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 17. Now, the children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Most everyone who was hard-hearted has died off. Everyone in their 20s are now come to age. And they're about to go into the promised land. You've got to understand what the promised land was. This was uh, nations of people that were, God had promised that land to. And that God was going to give it to the children of Israel. After their 500 years, I think it was, uh, in Egypt as slaves. And so they're going to march into a land where there are going to be houses that they did not build, roads that they're already paved that they did not pave, vineyards and, 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 and uh, uh, herds of cattle and flocks and whatever that they did not purchase. And they're just going to walk into it and it's going to be theirs. God's promised them their land, their promised land. But before he allows them to go into it, he brings them back to a wake-up call. And he begins to warn them that once you get into what I've promised you, what I've done, the miracle I've done for you, I want you to remember that I'm the one who's done it so that you don't become hard-hearted, arrogant, and, realize, and think that you yourself have done it. So let's pick up in verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, and you may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Verse 18, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Frank, can I tell you something? It is God that's given you the ability to bring in, bring in wealth. It is God. You, you understand, one moment you can have an aneurysm of the brain and no longer be able to go do your work and have an income source. You understand that you could have an accident at work. You could have an accident in walking through your house. And next thing you know, you're paralyzed from the neck down. You and I all should be able to testify that God has done miracles in our life. I know for me, there have been times I should be dead. Come on, somebody. There are times that I should not be in the place that I was in, but God promoted me. Why? Because God wants to promote you and I. He wants to find men and women on the earth that he can entrust the supernatural principles of heaven so that the harvest of the great lost and, and the dying can come into the kingdom business. He's more concerned about kingdom business. He's more about, concerned about eternal wealth, the souls of hurting and dying people than he is about whether or not you have a 1989 Honda Accord or a 2020 Honda Accord. He cares so much more about the souls that are dying and going up. That is great wealth. And to be 
rich in God is less about how much money is in your bank account and how much is in your heavenly account. Are you with me? Say yes. This is what this thing is all about. And so God's entrusted you with the neighborhood that you live in. He's entrusted you with the people that you work with. He's entrusted you with the income source that you have. And you and I have to first and foremost recognize it is he who's given us the ability to make wealth. It is he who's strength. It all belongs to him. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving, your limbs of movement to movement is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not not give him anything that was not already, in a sense, his very own. I love that statement because C.S. Lewis, the great thinker, had an understanding that God and God himself is the ruler and owner of everything we know that exists. Each and every one of us have a little bit of humanism in us. We think it was our hard work that got us there. And there's some truth to that. And here's the great big rub. There's this expectation from God that you and I be responsible for what's been entrusted to us. But at the same time, we have to be dependent upon him. And there can be a rub in that. You, you want me to be responsible, but yet, but yet it all belongs to you. If I'm irresponsible, then I'm to blame. If I'm too responsible, I think it's mine, and I don't give you the credit that you deserve. So there's that big rub in this whole concept in Scripture. But the, but the oil that makes that rub work really comes down to the fact that, and, and understanding that it is all his, and I'm simply stewarding what's his. I'll give you a great example. Years ago, I worked at a place, and uh, I was one of the managers, and uh, I took full responsibility. And so, man, I was going to make it great, I was going to make it great, I was going to make it great. And the owner of this particular <coughs> ministry is what it was, um, heard me saying things like, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. He pulled me aside, he said, you're going to do what? I was like, we're going to do this, you're going to do this. He goes, not without me wanting to do that, because it's mine. And in my attempt to be responsible, I made the owner feel as, low, as though I was trying to take it from him. And the big rub really comes down to, God, it's all yours, but I'm going to be as violently and as correctly responsible for what's yours as I know how to be. But it's an attitude of the heart change. And that is, it's not my money. It's not my kids. It's not my business. It all belongs to God. And when you and I come to that place of doctrine, when we embrace that as a truth, then what will happen is that stewardship piece can kick in. Because here, here's the beauty of this whole thing. Lord, this is God's church. It's not Adam McCain's church. You are his people, not my people. You have free will. I do my best to help you know God. But at the end of the day, that's between you and him. What a liberating experience. You do your best to steward those kids and teach them the ways of the Lord. But at the end of the day, they have free will. And if they don't want to serve God, you're not a great failure. Are you with me? Say yes. you got to grasp this. Why? Because I'm stewarding. Lord, I'm doing my best with the money that you've entrusted me, but I'm still having some struggles. At the end of the day, it's your money, Lord. It's your life. You've got to fix this for me. I can call upon him because he is the owner. Do you see the truth there? It's so powerful and it'll really help you. Here's the second big obstacle that you and I have to learn and walk in, and that is the big obstacle to actually being righteous stewards is fear. The second, in verse 20 21 of that passage in Luke 19 that we were studying just now, he comes and he says, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. I was scared of you. So I took the money and I hid it because I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to show up and not have what you had entrusted to me. And he thought that that was somewhat righteous. He says it was because of his fear. In the Matthew 25 passage, it's a similar passage, the master says, no, 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 you weren't scared. You were wicked and lazy. He says, you're actually lazy. And kind of identifies really more the core of why that other servant didn't steward what was entrusted to him. It was more about laziness and so much less about fear. Fear is the truth, though. And I watch this in leaders and men and women all throughout life. Some of you, God would love to entrust more to you, but there's a fear that you're going to fail. I know we'll approach some of you. We see leadership in your life. We're like, look, we really need you to be a small group leader. And you're like, oh, no, sir. No, sir. 
No, sir, because I know I'm going to cuss somebody out between now and then. And uh, I just, I mean, y'all going to be kicking me out of church or something. You know, I'm a, I'm a, my wife's going to punch me. I'm going to knock her out. I mean, I just, I can't be no small group lead up in the church, Pastor. I just can't. And the, re- and the reason why, because you're scared of failing. You're scared of messing it up. Are you with me? Say yes. And that's really probably what was happening in this man. He was so scared of messing it up that he didn't even try. And to that, God called him wicked. He called him wicked. See, fear will disable you. Fear will keep you from progressing. Fear will keep you from sitting down with your boss and say, listen, I've been faithful for 10 years here. I'd like to ask you, what can you do to help me increase? What can I do better? And what can you do, what can I do to prove to you that I'm worth more? Because I'd, I'd like to get a raise in this process somewhere along the way. I'd like to be better, and I'd like to do better. But fear will keep you from advancing. And that's, this man was surrounded by other servants that were doing, doing well with what was entrusted in. Why didn't he ask them for help? Why didn't you ask them for, hey, can you teach me how? I mean, you just got 10. How'd you get 10, bro? I just got this one. I got it right. What do I do? Why don't you at least go to the guy with, I only got five. Hey, bro, that dude over there, he's way too amped up. I don't even want to talk to him. Ain't no way I'm going to do what he's doing. He's knocking on every door. I mean, he's crazy. But you, you seem to be more my pace. Can you help me get to that? But arrogance and pride, he called it fear. But it really was pride that he didn't ask for help. Friend, can I tell you something? God wants to entrust you with so much. Do you ask for help? Say, man, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that. God would love to promote you to be the boss at your job. What would you do with it if he did? Would everybody follow you or would they all leave and go work somewhere else? He would love to entrust you millions of dollars. He'd love to entrust you. What would you do with it? Would you build newborns, store it all up, eat, drink, and be merry? Or would you be a conduit to touch the world? That's what this thing is all about. He wants to trust men and women with his great riches. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm believing that Church on the Hill people will be the kind of people, if you're standing in Walmart and someone passes out and is on the floor and is having a heart attack, the Church on the Hill people can walk over and lay hands and say, be be healed in Jesus' name. Do you will not die. You will raise up right now. And they'll come back to life right there in front of everybody. I'm believing that God can entrust you and me with the great riches of heaven, which is much more about peace and joy, the supernatural movement of God, the souls that lay out there in darkness. It's much more about that and less about how much money we got in our bank account and what kind of cars that we drive. So the second big obstacle is fear. The reason why we don't steward well, we don't know what to do. We're scared to do it. We don't want to make a mistake. And you've got to overcome that fear and entrust the Lord. And as you and I learn to entrust him, what will happen is he will advance us. And one of the key pieces connected to that fear really comes down to you and I being discontent. Look what, look what Philippians chapter 4 verse 12 says. Paul says it like this. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Can I just say something to you? You're, you're so scared that, that your life is not going to matter. And it's so fun to watch all you millennials like, you know, I've got to be rich by the time I'm 30. Oh, I've got to retire by the time I'm 35. And, and then you're stressing yourself out. And I've got to be the best parent. I've got to be the best grandparent. And all this kind of stuff. Can I just tell you something? You need to learn the secret of contentment. You need, you're striving for another, another big old house. How about the house that you have now? Just make it great. You're striving for the next big wow thing in your life. How about just take what you have right now, the kids that you have, and love them the best you can. You say, oh, I can't. Hey, I hate my job. I want to get out here and go somewhere else. Listen, if you go somewhere else, you're going to bring the same problems over there. What you need to learn is contentment and how to steward what you have right now, right here. And when you make that great, what will happen is God will entrust you with something else. This are, these are the spiritual principles of God's prosperity in the believer's life. John Osteen, who is Joel Osteen's dad, he's since gone to be with the Lord. He tells a story when he was 16, 17 years old. He got, his, he got a job, and he had just gotten saved, and just gotten filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and he's radically loving God, but he needed a job so he could pay for his life because they were poor. And so he got a job at the local grocery store, and they put him over the produce section with all the fruits and vegetables and all those kind of things. And he hated it, but it was a job. And so he worked, and one day God spoke to him about stewarding what God had entrusted to him. He repented, and he said, okay, God, I'm going to make... 16-year-old, 16-year-old said, I'm going to make this produce section the best, best in all of Fort Worth, all in Dallas-Fort Worth area. So he starts getting there early. He's wiping every apple by hand. 
He is throwing, he's finding the bugs and crushing them before they get to go into these areas. He is making this, and within a matter of weeks and months, he becomes, his produce session becomes the top seller in the whole store. Then it becomes the top in all the, that little food chain of grocery stores in all of Fort Worth and the Metroplex. And before you know it, he's being promoted and managed and, to management and further and further on, all because he learned how to steward as a 16-year-old that which had been entrusted to him. See, God wants to entrust you with more. When you show up at work late every day, and you're quick to leave early, and anytime you're given a task, you're rolling your eyes and saying, that's not my job description, that's so-and-so's job description. What that says is, I'm not a good steward, and I can't be entrusted. I had a, had a leader in our, in our ministry years ago, good guy, oh, he was the best. But he couldn't be trusted. We couldn't rely on him. We would have these events, we'd have meetings, we'd have Small groups that he was overseeing, and we just couldn't rely on him. Oh, he was the greatest giver. He was so generous. He was so generous that we couldn't rely on him. We never knew if he was going to show up. We'd have a meeting. He had a part to play in that meeting. He wouldn't show up. He'd come 45 minutes late. Oh, I'm so sorry. There was a lady at the gas station. I just had to pray for her. That's great, but you made a commitment here, and you haven't followed through. God wants to entrust you with the great things of heaven. But you and I have to learn to be stewards of what we have right now. And so, unfortunately, we live in a generation where there's such social media. And it's amazing, right? I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember um, that we didn't know what somebody was doing down the street. I'm old enough to remember that the guys who graduated high school with me, I didn't know what they were doing until we had our 10-year reunion, right? But now, all of a sudden, you graduate high school and you got that dude who was an idiot in your class. And three or four years later, you're going through social media, and you find him, and he's now making a million dollars a year. And you're like, he's an idiot. How is he making this, God? And I can't, I'm going to church. The preacher wants me to tithe. My life sucks. And you're all frustrated and mad because you see what someone else is, seeing, is doing, and you're not content with what you have. And if you're not content with what you have, you won't steward it well. And then when time comes to advance you, you can't be advanced. Why? Because you haven't stewarded the things that he's entrusted you with. And then you and I are sitting around looking at what everybody else is getting, and that makes us more frustrated. And it leads us to the third big obstacle, and that is distractions. The third big obstacle for stewarding well is distractions. Proverbs 21, 17 says it like this. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. What the writer of this proverb was teaching us is there are a lot of distractions out there. A lot of things that are frivolous. A lot of things that don't really matter, but that we get caught up in. Like, oh, the iPhone 7 is not good enough anymore. I've got to have the iPhone QRXK. Because you know what it does now? What? I don't know, but it's awesome. And everybody has it, and I've got to have it. I don't know why, but I have to have it. It's amazing how easily distracted we can be from what we've been entrusted in. Oh, the dad who feels that he's worked so hard all week long that when he finally comes home in the evening, he wants to sit in his big chair, drink a six-pack, and don't want to be bothered by his wife or kids. Sir, you've been entrusted with that marriage. You've been entrusted with those children. Doesn't matter how tired you are. That's an entrusting. And you're allowing yourself to be distracted. That person who would rather shop online all throughout the night than actually get enough sleep so they could be fresh for work the next day. There's an entrustment that God wants to continue in, but you and I have to learn to be faithful. Are you with me? Say yes. One of the key components to removing the distractions is to actually identify what's most important in your life. And actually, the term we use in finances is budgeting. Some of you are terrible about budgeting your time. Some of you are terrible about budgeting your relationships. So you keep adding more relationships. Everybody's my best friend. Everybody's my best friend. Yeah, but nobody knows you. Because you you don't invest in anything. I'm making so much money. I got all this. I got this going. I got this going. I got this going. I got this going. Yeah, but you're broke. Because you're not budgeting your time, your effort, and your energy. So way before there was financial peace with Dave Ramsey, way before that, There was a man, anybody know his name, who taught finances in the Christian community? Larry Burkett. Larry Burkett. Some of us are old enough to remember Larry Burkett. And Larry Burkett taught us how to identify the things that are the most important in our life, especially when it comes to finances. 
And he taught us how to actually budget, how to say, I'm going to put this much to this and this much to this and this much to this. And he had something he called the envelope system. Anybody ever participate in the envelope system? Anybody old enough? Look at you. Come on, Gina. Your mom and dad made you do it. Yes, sir. That's good. Paul, Paul's in. He grew up in church life. Okay, the rest of you had no idea. So let me explain to you what the envelope system was. The envelope system started like this. And, 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 and so Larry Burkett said, take your paycheck. Every week, take your paycheck. So get all your money, cash it out. Bring that home. And then take... And identify the things that you have to pay. And the first thing he started with, because as Christians, he taught us, obviously, the first thing comes out of your money is your tithe. So you take that money and you put that in the envelope. And when you go to church next week, you take that money out of the envelope and you bring your tithe. That was the first big one that he taught us to put in the envelope. Now, I I would say do not do this because I don't want anybody breaking in your house and murdering you over $1,000, okay? So don't keep cash laying around. But anyway, this is the way he helped us see it. And then the next thing he taught us was take the next big commitment that you made. And for most of us, that's our house note. And take that money out of your check and put that money in the house. Now, we say, ooh, that's, that's a lot of money. Right. But you made that commitment. You got that loan. You live in that house or, you, or your rent or whatever, and put that money in that envelope and wait till your bill comes due and then you pay it on time like you're supposed to. And then he took us to the next big thing, which typically for most of us was a car note. Take the money out of your, out of, out of your paycheck, put it, in, put it in the envelope for your car note, and so that when your car note comes due, you pay your note on time, and the creditors aren't knocking at your door, and you can't figure out why that guy just took your car in the middle of the night. The next thing was our insurance, because we committed to it. We, our health insurance, your life insurance, your car insurance, take your money out when you get your paycheck. Now, you pay, now your money's getting thinner and thinner, but you're putting them in the right places because you've identified what your commitments were, and you're budgeting your money according to your commitments. And so then from there, and then he taught us also that we should take 10% of our income and put it in savings. And so I've done that since I was a kid, since I was 11 years old. I've taken money out of, my, out of whatever income I had and I put it in savings. Can I just say this to you? Your church stewards, the resources that God entrusts the church on the hill with so well. Let me just say it to you like this. This summer, we had multiple air-conditioned units on this top of this building that went bad. We didn't have a plea in front of everyone. Please, if you don't, it's going to be hot in here. We had money in savings because we put 10% in savings every month of all the tithes and offerings that come in. And we had that money in savings. So when something like that happens, we're able to pay for it. Frank, can I tell you something? Something's going to happen in your life. You need to have a savings. You need to have something set aside. It's, you need to budget savings. Here's the next thing that we, we found was real important that he taught us to do. And that was put some of our money into food. You got to eat. Some of you eating too much. That's why, look, look, let's just put the whole thing in there. That's where the problem's at. And after we put our money in the food, then the next one was, that was real important, was cell phone. That was the 80s. So for us, it wasn't cell phone. I wrote that for you for this today. And it, it was our beepers. And um, yeah, put our money in our beepers. So how much was a beeper? In those days, you could get a beeper for $15 a month. It was awesome. It was so cool. And then it was so cool because he taught us, put money aside out of your check every month for entertainment. You got to go see a, mo- a movie. You need to do something fun. The problem is, because you haven't budgeted, you look up and go, ooh, I got money in my account. We going out tonight. Problem is, you haven't paid the house note yet. Right, that's where your problem's at, because you don't know how to budget. So you can't steward what God's trying to entrust you. It's not that you don't make enough money. You're working two and three jobs because you're unbudgeted, because you're overspending, because anytime something happens, you're like, ooh, let's do it. Woo! You spent $800 at the state fair, and all you did was gain 20 pounds. You could, you could have got six flag tickets for half. Jesus. I love you. God bless you. Eating out. You got to eat out. You're going to have a little bit of eat out. So we were taking, Jamie and I, we were brand new newlyweds when we were doing this. So we put our little money in eating out. It was awesome. $5 for the month. It was amazing. It was amazing. Everybody would go out after church. Y'all want to go out with us? Mm, nope. Can't go. Let's see. Nope. We only have $3 right now. Hold on a couple more weeks when we get our next paycheck. Then we get our five, ten dollars in, and Jamie and I would go to McDonald's. It was awesome. We got to eat out once a month. It was amazing. And then how about gifts? Some of you don't even think about this. You got nieces and nephews having birthday parties and gifts, Christmas coming up. You haven't been putting any money in the side for that. It's a part of your budget. You've committed to give your niece uh, uh, something for her birthday. So then what do you do? You go charge it. Now you're in debt and you're paying 18% on your charge card. Because you didn't plan for it. You didn't budget for it. Come on, stay with me. How, do you, how did the guy get 10, the other guy got 5, and the one guy, one guy didn't get 1? Because he was scared to death because he didn't know how to budget. He didn't know what he was doing. No one had taught him. Guarantee it. And then how about this one? Vacation. He's like, I'm so stressed out. We haven't been on a vacation in like 20 years. 
You had not been on vacation. Why did you not put a little something aside every month? Oh, listen, early on, listen, Jamie and I, we understand. Uh, look, we put our little dollar in vacation fund, and we pray over it, Father, multiply it supernaturally. Let this envelope just get fat with some kind of supernatural way. And we'd look down in it. It wouldn't be fat. It'd just be what we'd been putting into it. And so our vacation looked like, well, for vacation this year, we're going to go walk around Fort Worth. Let's go. Wait a minute. Don't park there because that's too much. We don't have that much money in the, in the envelope. And we learned how to put the money aside according to the commitments that we had made. I had a young man one time came to me. He was making $40,000 a year. $40,000 a year. Living at home. Not paying rent. Not paying electricity. Internet. Nothing. Living at home. And he was in debt and could not pay his bill. Fresh out of Bible school. He said, I don't know where all the money's going. I sat him down. And we just did a three-minute, like, where do you spend here? What do you? Guess where all his money was going? Eating out. That boy was eating $20,000 a year. And he wasn't a big boy. But every morning, he'd get up on his way to work, and he'd go through McDonald's. Every, every break time, he was doing a little bit of construction work, so he felt like he deserved because he's working so hard. Break time, he'd run over to Circle K or somewhere like that, you know, and he'd get him, he'd get him a 64-ounce and a Snickers bar and a pickle. And then lunchtime came, and they, oh, no, because they'd been working so hard, they weren't going to just go eat fast food. Oh, no, they had to go somewhere like Chili's or somewhere like that in the air conditioning. And then at dinner time, all the friends in the youth ministry and the young adult ministry were all going out. So he'd go out and eat with them, and sometimes he'd pay for somebody else. And he felt justified by spending all the money because he was blessing others. He was being generous. He was being, being generous with somebody else's money because he put it on a credit card. It wasn't his money. He hadn't budgeted. I love that Pastor Jack taught you last week to budget generosity. Put it in an account. Knowing that I'm going to give that. I have a set aside that when God does certain things in our lives, that I know that that's for someone else. And it's already set aside. It's a plan that I have. And if God does something special in this area, I know that that means that I'm supposed to be a conduit to give that out. We are able to live in the amount of money that Jamie and I make, which is not a lot, because we're good at stewarding what he's given us. See, God wants to bless you. God has plans to prosper you, but you got to work his plan. And God wants to increase you, but if you can't be faithful in the little, how can he make you ruler over much? Our opening scripture was, and if you can't be trustworthy in worldly riches, how can you be entrusted with great heavenly riches? Paraphrased, of course. God wants to entrust you with crazy cool things. you got to learn to steward. It's his that's the first place you got to come to. It's all yours, Lord. It's not mine. Second place you got to come to is I will not be scared to try. I will not be scared to attempt great things for you, God. Third, I will budget. I will steward this properly. I will be faithful to it. See, some of you have been crying out for a new car, but you've never once washed or cleaned your car. You got wrappers all, you got McDonald's cups all over the place. You got our last 10 flyers that we sent out to everyone in the church to invite people to come to church laying on the floorboard. They are your mats for your floorboard. They're your floorboard mats. You want a new house, but you don't cut the grass at your own house. Oh God, I don't know if I can live with this guy anymore. You haven't stewarded that relationship. I don't need to give you a new husband. He needs to help you steward what you got and him to steward what he has. Oh, it's beautiful that God brought you together. Now steward it. Why aren't you doing a marriage conference once a year? Why aren't you, why aren't you, why aren't you going through some, some videos? I mean, my Lord, everything's free on YouTube now. How to be married and, and do it right. From all these great Christian teachers. Why would you not invest and steward what you have? Instead of constantly looking for something else. When people keep looking for something else. There's, look, I, I, they come here all the time. I'm going to find a better church. Hallelujah. But the problem with going to the next thing to find the better thing to find the better thing is that you bring the same problems of your inability to steward from place to place. I worked a job one time. I hated I hated it. I hated it. Didn't know why God asked me to do it. And I was so mad at God about it. I needed it. I was in Bible school. I needed the job. So I worked it. And I, and I, and I remember when God spoke to me, Are it, your attitude's determining your altitude here. And I said, God, I repent. And I changed my attitude. I got there early. I stayed late. I told the boss I was going to be his best employee he ever had. I didn't like the man. Man was a pervert. He was an adulterer. I was so just wanted to rip him a new one because he was a he called himself a Christian. Went to church. He was he was wicked. He wasn't no Christian. And I was in Bible school, so I'm, I know the word. I'm ready to just fire on him. 
And God just said, serve his business well. And when my time there came to an end, because it was time for me to move on, uh, into, uh, I was accepting a ministry position. It was outside of Bible school. I set that man down. And I said, have I served you well? He said, son, you've been one of the best employees I've ever had. I said, can you share with me why you say that? He said, you made this better. You made this better. You made this better. I said, sir, thank you for that. I said, I want to be honest with you. You've not been the best boss I've ever had. I said, and I'll tell you why. Because you misrepresent. You said that you love God, but you don't. And I've never called you out on it. But I'm leaving now, so you can't fire me. But you've been cheating on your wife, sir. And you've asked me to, to not rat you out on some things. And I just want you to know that you will stand in judgment for that one day. And I love you. And I don't want to see you burn in hell forever. And if I were you, I would ask the Lord to forgive me. And then I'd ask my wife to forgive me. And I would own it. Wealthy. This is a law firm. Wealthy, wealthy, arrogant uh, nepotism with this fan, narcissistic, my Jesus. And that man looked at me. <laughs> Here's this little young 19-year-old Bible school punk graduate. A big tear started coming down his cheek. He said, I may do what you said. And I said, well, thank you for our time together. He let me say a little prayer. I left and I never saw him again. I stewarded that relationship the best I knew how. Could I have done better? Maybe. But that's how I knew how to do the best. Do the best you know how to do. Steward those kids the best you know how. Steward that little bit of money the best you know how. Take that little produce section, make it the best you know how. Give a little extra effort. Try a little harder. Have a little better attitude in the midst of it. As you steward what God's entrusted to you, he will look down and he will cause favor to come upon you. Where the bosses will say, this kid right here, this is the one. Sir, this man has been working for it. What happened this year? I don't know. Something shifted in him. He acted like he never wanted to work here before, and now he's acting like he's the employee of the year. And so that, it'll shift, and God's favor will come upon you. He will entrust you with more and more and more and more and more. Why? That you may be a blessing, that we may be blessing to the peoples of the earth, that all men may know that he is the Lord God Savior. That's why he wants to favor us so that we can help others know his goodness. Would you stand with me all across the room? Let us be rich in God. Would you say that with me? Rich in God. One more time. Rich in God. Would you join hands of that person next to you for just a moment? We've gone a little long because you guys were a little slow in listening. Lord, I repent. But I do want to speak over you today and pray over you. And I, I'm believing that all of us, all of us, every member of Church on the Hill will become and develop into men and women that God can entrust us with more. I want God to entrust you with miracles. I'm asking God to entrust you with the supernatural. I'm asking God to entrust you with more resources. Because there, there are missionaries that need money to do the work. They're hurting their families that can't quite make it. There are advancements in the gospel that needs to take place, but we just we need financing for it. Your family needs to see righteousness, character, and integrity. That you didn't have to steal to get it. That you didn't have to lie to get it. That God favored you because you, you stewarded what he had already entrusted to you. And as we close in this moment... I want you to ask the Lord to entrust you with his great riches. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about heavenly riches. To entrust you. And I want you to repent for any area that has caused you not to be trustworthy. And ask the Lord to help you. All the guy had to do was ask the other two guys, man, how do you do it? I'm not good at stewarding. I gave you a little crazy example of the envelopes. It, was just, it started something in me that I realized I have to steward what's been entrusted to me. I can't take on things that I can't do. It's, it's not within my wheelhouse. It's not in my ability. God didn't, he doesn't allow me to minister to you great people because I'm so gifted. It, Jamie and I are your pastors because we've been faithful in the little things. Faithful in the little things. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the best pastor in the nation. I'm not the most creative communicator. I'm just faithful. And he keeps advancing me. He's going to do the same for you. Father, we come before you today as a church. 
Daddy, we ask you now, help us be good stewards. Lord, we repent where we have, where we have not valued what you've entrusted to us. Lord, we repent for making excuses. We repent for the fear that's gripped our heart, caused us to be disabled and not able to move and change and, and make new directives. Oh, God, we pray right now in Jesus' name that you would heal our heart, that, Lord God, that you would work in us and through us and with us. Oh, God, bring people around us that can help coach us a little bit. Lord God, show us, oh, God, where we're missing you, where you're trying to entrust to us. But, Lord God, we've not been trustworthy, and so you've had to hold back so you, so you didn't destroy us. God, I pray right now that every man and woman in our church Lord God, that they would come to the place where you can entrust them, Lord God, with great, with great finances, oh God. Lord, where you can entrust them, Lord God, with souls. Where you can entrust them with the supernatural power. Lord God, where you can entrust them, oh God, with the big things in the earth today. Prejudiceness, oh God. All the misappropriations of injustice. Lord, we want you to trust us with those solutions. God, I pray right now, Lord. Lord, I pray for young people and young adults in our congregation that you would entrust some of them with the solution to cancer. That you entrust, Lord God, some of the people in our congregation, Lord God, with the difficulties that are happening in the cities around us. Lord, that you would entrust them with the answers to the problems so that our nation can see and know that you are the living God. That the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children can turn back to the Father God. Daddy, I thank you right now for your goodness and your kindness. If you let go of that hand of that person next to you, keep your head bowed for just a moment. I've gone a little long today, and I'm so sorry. Closing out this series was real important to me as we enter into the Christmas holidays. I wanted to be sure that you got that understanding on how to fulfill uh, that Jeremiah 29, 11 plans to prosper you. I wanted you to have that going into 2019. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you a question. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Do you know the God that is my best friend? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Some people call it saved. Have you been saved? What they're trying to articulate is that it's appointed for once and all for every man to die. And then the judgment. And that, that judgment for those who have not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior will result in total destruction of your soul for eternity. He would that none should perish though, but all have eternal life. So he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the payment of our sins. See, we've all sinned and so someone has to pay for that. If someone ran over your child with their car and killed them, you'd expect a payment for that. You'd expect justice for that. Every time we sin against the holy God, there should be, there's got to be payment for it. And so God paid for it himself. He sent his only begotten son. Jesus died on a cross. He paid it forward for every sin you and I will ever commit. And today, you can access that payment. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I haven't been serving God, but my heart is beating within my chest. It's time. I'm ready. I want to be right with God. I don't want to leave here. I don't don't want to live in the same way I've been living. Friend, I got good news for you. Jesus will wash you clean. He will transform your life. So, oh, that's so good. What do I do? The Bible just, I just quoted the Bible and it says, confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Would you let me pray with you? If you're away from God, if you're not a Christian, would you let me lead you to him? Would you let me help jumpstart a relationship with him? It's just a matter of prayer, a matter of confession of your mouth and believing in your heart. I'm not going to call you forward. Don't need to point you out. Don't need to uh, have everybody look at you and make some pledge. This is a deep, private, serious decision. If you come to the place and you're ready to make that decision for Christ, I want to pray with you. No one's looking around. Me, you, in heaven. That's the only one's looking you say, Pastor, that's me. Pray with me. I want to get right with God. I want to pray with you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right from where you're standing. But I need you to acknowledge that by lifting your hand and saying, Pastor, that's me. I'm ready. I'm ready to serve God. I'm ready to get right with the Lord. Would you lift your hand and admit that? If that's you, God bless you, sir. Who else wants me to pray with them and ask God into their life? Anyone else? God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Give me a couple more seconds. Thanks for your honesty. Anybody else? Pastor, it's time. I'm ready to serve God. I'm tired of living like this. It's my time. Two more seconds. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. All the hands are down. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance. In fact, I'm going to ask everyone in the audience to pray it out loud alongside of you. 
But those who lifted your hand, I want you to mean it from every fiber of your being. Let's pray. Say it like this. Jesus, a little bit better. Jesus, today I admit I'm a sinner. I recognize I've sinned against you. And today I repent. I ask you now to forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I declare you are my Lord and Savior. I accept, say it again, I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. I ask you now, write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I promise to serve you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. Father, I pray over every man and woman who prayed that prayer, whether they lifted their hand or not, but they meant it from their heart. I pray right now, peace would come over them. Walk out of this place with their shoulders back and their head held high, knowing that you have forgiven them. They're not going to be perfect, but they are forgiven. They are now a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And Lord God, as difficulty happens, as life throws them those horrible, horrible tragedy moments and difficult times, that Lord God, that you will be right there with them, walking them through. That Lord, at the end of this age, when they stand before you, like what we read in that passage today, you embrace them and hold them in your arms and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll wipe every tear from their eye. You'll tell them how much you love them and how much eternity is going to be exciting as we spend it with you forever. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord God, for this great series. Lord, we want to walk in your plan. And Lord, I thank you that you're going to entrust us with heaven's resources. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen.